this morning, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 1, where I'd like to read for you the first 11 verses, and taking as our text this morning, verse 8, Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Hear now God's word. The former treatise I made, O Theophilus, concerning all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was received up. After that, he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing unto them by the space of forty days, and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which said he ye heard from me. For John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days hence. They therefore, when they were come together, asked him, saying, Lord, dost thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father hath set within his own authority, but ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And ye shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were looking steadfastly into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was received up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye behold him going into heaven. And thus far the reading of God's word. Did you feel much like a hypocrite in singing that last hymn as we prepared our hearts for this morning's message? You know, one of the problems we have with turning to um, hymns that are already printed out and numbered in our book and uh, we don't prepared to sing them. So we just turn to the page and the music starts and we stand up and we get right into the words. And I don't know, sometimes I find myself singing words and thinking about them and saying, now wait a minute. Um, Maybe I should have thought a bit before I got into this. It's hard, I know, in terms of the, uh, the formality of worship to do that. But listen to this third verse of I Love to Tell the Story. We sang, I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat. What seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's holy word. I love to tell the story, t'will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Well, I think that when I sang those words I had to sing that God would make me true to them because they don't really describe me so often I don't think they do you either we find it difficult sometimes to tell the story of Jesus and to speak to people about our religious faith I think of a number of examples of opportunities for witness that we overlook Now, the easy thing at this point is to think of situations where you've been put together with a stranger somewhere, and you're thinking, now, maybe I should bring up religion. I should bring up the theme of Jesus and salvation. I should witness to this person, evangelize this person. Maybe you're on an airplane flying to some other 
town and you have an hour or two sitting next to somebody and you think, well, I should make use of this opportunity to witness for Jesus. And we may think of cases like that, but I'm afraid that our guilty silence is not nearly magnified enough, is not really revealed for what it is when we think of those extraordinary circumstances when what I would call buttonhole evangelism is the opportunity of the moment. That is, somebody that you don't know, you're buttonholing them to bring them a religious message. No, I think our guilty silence is much more revealed in the fact that there are people with whom we work day in and day out, for months on a uh, time, years maybe, in one particular place, in one particular office, with the same workers next to us, the same contacts we make, who know, if anything, that perhaps we go to church. Who we have never said a concrete, specific word to about their need of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and their ultimate destiny if they don't come to know him as Savior. I think of people that we live next door to, people who live in our neighborhood, with whom we fraternize, perhaps we get together for block parties, we may see them from time to time, we may trade tools with one another. We may um, help one another when there's a flat tire. We do these sorts of things and have these sorts of social contacts. And yet if we were to ask these people what they know about our faith and the content of their faith, they'd say, oh, well, we see them go to church on Sunday. But um, as to what church or what they believe or why they believe it or how important it is to them, we know very little at all. <clears throat> or relatives that you have constant contact with. Relatives who know only the slightest of your own particular convictions. Relatives who, even if they know the content of your convictions, are never approached by you out of love and concern for them that they would share the same faith and come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, these examples could go on and on, and I want you, as I'm speaking this morning, not to think of those extraordinary cases, what I call the buttonhole stranger evangelism cases, but I want you to think of these cases of your family and your acquaintances, the people with whom you work and who live next door to you. I want you to think of these toward whom you have never said one good word with specific content about Jesus Christ. And that's why this morning's message is called Our Guilty Silence. Actually, the title of the message comes from a fine little book written by John R. Stott, leading evangelical writer, entitled Our Guilty Silence. And in this book, Stott says, if I may quote him, if the gospel is the good news it claims to be, and if it has been entrusted to us, we incur guilt if we do not pass it on. Gospel means good news. God has news for us. Now, you know, when news breaks in our day, um, the whole idea is to get it out to people. I mean, that's, there are stations and papers that make it their business to get the news to people first because news is something that is to be communicated. And God has sent some good news. And Stott says, if it is news and if it's good news and if this news has been entrusted to us and then we're quiet about it, then we are guilty in our silence. It is a guilty silence. Now, Richard Nixon could speak of the silent majority. Jerry Falwell can speak of the moral majority. But I think this morning we can speak legitimately of the silent saints who are the majority that fill our pews. 
and it would be um, perhaps more comfortable this morning to say I'm talking about all those other Christian congregations and churches out there who have so many people. I mean, what did we uh, hear last week? Uh, Gallup reports that 8 out of 10 Americans say that they are Christians. Well, of course, very few of them even know the slightest thing about the teaching of the Bible or go to church regularly. But of those who go to church regularly, we might still say the majority of them have hardly anything to say. If they were evangelistic force, this nation would be set on fire. We wouldn't need Billy Graham crusades to come to town to get the word out. We would be able to say to Billy Graham, you're too late. I mean, we've let everybody know here, and we're at it all the time. But you see, the very reason we need a Billy Graham crusade in this community is because the majority of Christians sitting in the pews are silent, silent saints, guilty in their silence. Uh, but that majority, you see, that's too general because that applies to us too. That applies to this congregation. This applies to your family. This applies to you this morning. A guilty silence about the good news. Now, John Stott suggests that there are four main reasons for our guilty silence. Let me just repeat them for you, and then I'm going to look at one in particular. Stott says that we are often guilty and silent about passing on the good news, first because we have no compelling incentive. No compelling incentive, which Stott says is the glory of God. If we lived for the glory of God, we couldn't keep our mouths closed in terms of witnessing for him. A second reason for our guilty silence suggested by Stott is that we do not know what to say. We don't have a message to communicate. We don't know the gospel. And I would hope with all my heart that that doesn't apply to this congregation. You certainly do know what the good news is. And this afternoon I'll talk to you about how you need to summarize it and get to know it better to pass it on. But uh, Stott here is referring to many in liberal churches, you see, who don't have good news to give people. They've forgotten the message of Scripture. But a third reason for guilty silence is that we are not convinced it's our job to pass on this word to others. And then fourthly, Stott says we have forgotten the source of our power, which is the Holy Spirit. We've forgotten that we rely not on the arm of the flesh, but upon the power of God, expressed through His Spirit operative in the church. Now this morning, though, I want to focus on reason number three. We're not convinced that it's our job to witness. I really think that this is the heart of the matter when it comes to this congregation. I've already said, I know you know what the good news is. You know the gospel. You know the message. In fact, we have, and I say this not so much to our pride, but just as a description and to lay down for you your responsibility all the more, we have most likely in this very small congregation one of the more literate Christian assemblies anywhere in this county, maybe in Southern California. We have very bright Christians, Christians who read, Christians who make theology a matter of importance, who have studied and reflected and thought about it. And so it's not for lack of a message when it comes to this congregation. And I would be loath to think it's for lack of incentive. You know that you're to live for the glory of God. What is the very first question of our catechism? What is man's chief end? What is his highest priority? What is the purpose for which God has put him here? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so certainly here we have the incentive of the glory of God. 
And we too know that evangelistic success comes from the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't use and don't endorse the invitation system of evangelism. Although we thank God that he saves people even through weak methods such as that, and even though we can participate with people who may use it, it is not our chosen or preferred method because we believe the Holy Spirit saves people and saves them in their seats, saves them by changing their hearts. We know, theologically, mentally, intellectually, we know the source of our power. We may question whether we're making use of the source of that power, but we know it. Now, I want to come back to this third reason, which I think probably more than any of these others, for us today, sitting here, worshiping God in this place, is the real reason why we are so guilty in our silence. We're not convinced it's our job. And so, let's go through some biblical passages this morning in an effort to show you our responsibility to witness. Our responsibility to witness. First of all, I'd like to look at the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's look at God the Father and what the Father requires of us. Turn to Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, passages, uh, passage that we sometimes tend to neglect because it's used by one of the cultic groups in the world today. But it's an excellent passage, abused by that group, properly used, hopefully, by God's people. Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, saith Jehovah, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be any after me. I, even I, am Jehovah, and besides me there is no Savior. God says he is the only creator, he is the only God, he is the only Savior. And then God says to his people, and you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. God does not come down and walk upon earth as a continual principle of operation and testify to himself. He says, you are my witnesses. You are the ones that I have called out and chosen to testify for me. I want you to stop and think what you would do if you had a loved one, perhaps a relative, a husband or a wife, who was brought up on some kind of a charge and was going to a court of law there to show their innocence against some terrible thing that's said about them. And you had the evidence necessary to acquit them, to verify their good name. You know, you would, you would have this compulsion in you, wouldn't you? To say, I want to be your witness. I want to stand for you. And God says, you are my witnesses. As those all about you claim that there are other gods and other authorities and other purposes for living, when those all about you say that I don't exist or that I'm not real or that I'm weak or not sovereign, not involved in lives, you are my witnesses. Are you just as eager to stand up and say, I'll be counted for I want to testify to God my Father. I will be a Jehovah's witness in the right sense. Jesus, the Son of God, also wishes to have us make known his mercy to our acquaintances. Turn to Mark, the fifth chapter, verses 18 to 20. There's a wealth of evangelistic incentive here. Mark 5 
verses 18 to 20. In context, Jesus has just healed a demoniac, a man who was possessed of evil spirits, satanic agents. And the man was a real danger to himself and to society. He's a man who had to live in the tombs, out away from uh, the town, because he would often throw himself about and lose control of his body and cut himself with stones and so forth. And people in town were scared of this man, and so they banished him, and Jesus healed him. And now this man, in his right mind, free of that demonic influence, and safe, and with a future, and with some dignity about him now, wants to be with Jesus. You would too. Can you imagine? Can't you just feel from the heart what this man would have? He wanted to be a follower of Jesus. He wanted to go with Jesus. He didn't want to stay there where people knew him and knew his past and knew all the embarrassing things he had done. He just wanted to spend time with Jesus. And so at verse 18 we read, And as he was entering into the boat, he that had been possessed with demons besought him that he might be with him. And he allowed him not, but saith unto him, Go to thy house unto thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and how he had mercy on thee. And he went his way and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men marveled. You know, we sometimes feel really from the heart a love for Jesus for what he has done. And I think we have the same kind of tendency. I just want to be with Jesus. I, I want to pray. I want to read. I want to know more about him. I want to be alone with my Lord. And of course, it's appropriate that we want to have quiet time, meditation time, reading time, prayer time with God. But you see, we sometimes get so self-consumed with the good spiritual feeling that comes from that, that that's where we leave it. We want to be with Jesus like this demoniac wanted to be with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, don't follow me. Not in this way. Don't come with me. Rather, go back to your home. Go back to your friends and your acquaintances. Go back to those very people who know your former life and tell them what great things God has done for you. Show them the compassion and mercy of God in your life. God the Father, Jehovah Almighty, says, You are appointed my witnesses. Jesus says to us this morning, Go to your friends. Go to your home. Go to your acquaintances. Make it known to them what great things God has done for you. And then in Acts 1, the 8th chapter, we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Boy, in our day and age, we could get into a number of theological debates about the Holy Spirit, couldn't we? And what is the work of the Holy Spirit today? What is the nature of the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit lead us to do ecstatic things, lead us into charismatic gifts and manifestations? I mean, we'd love to debate these sorts of things, but you see, there's something we should all agree on. There shouldn't be any question about this, and that's the number one primary force of the Holy Spirit in the Christian church today. Jesus put it this way, and Luke accentuates the fact these are the last words of Jesus. Jesus says these words, and in Luke's way of recounting it, at that point he begins to ascend into heaven. These are his words to his followers. He says, first of all, you're to stay in Jerusalem. Well, that sounds a little unusual, especially in light of, you know, an evangelistic uh, command is going to be given. But Jesus says, you're to stay in Jerusalem until you've received the promise of the Father. Throughout the whole Old Testament period, 
There was a promise that was given of grace. Grace that would be made manifest and accomplished in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, but applied through the Holy Spirit's operation in the lives and among God's people. And so Jesus says, you're to wait until that promise finally comes now and descends upon you. Jesus says that he will send the promise of the Father upon the church. And what will that be? Look at Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You see, there's the, there's the commissioning of God from the Old Testament. You are my witnesses. Jesus says, and when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit dispenses upon the church, it will be with power. Then you should leave Jerusalem and then go to earth's remotest ends, Judea, Samaria, and everywhere else. But stay here because until you've received the Holy Spirit, you are not adequate as my witnesses. But now we have. Now the day of Pentecost has come, and whatever our disagreements may be theologically over the gifts of the Spirit and charismatic manifestations, all of God's people, Baptist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, whatever it may be, we should all agree that we've got power now to be his witnesses. And witnesses not just here, not just standing in the midst of God's people, but witnesses in our neighborhoods and in our cities, our counties, our states, the nation, the whole world, earth's remotest ends. This, you see, is the primary work of the Holy Spirit empowering us to this end. And so Jehovah, God the Father, says, you are my witnesses. Jesus says, go back and tell people the mercy that you have been shown. And the Holy Spirit's operation is just exactly to that end, that we should, for Jesus, be his witnesses to earth's remotest ends. And then there's a very precious passage in the book of Revelation that I'd like to focus on for a few moments here as well, because if we'll take this triune incentive for being the witnesses of God, we'll also see effects in history as Satan is defeated. Indeed, that is the way Satan is to be put down and defeated in history. Turn to Revelation 12, verses 7 to 11. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels going forth to war with the dragon, and the dragon warred and his angels, and they prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent, he that is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, and now look at the explanation of the defeat of Satan that he has cast down from his position of power and authority. Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down who accuseth them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. You see, we might think in terms of strict theological terms of the way Satan is defeated in history is by the blood of the Lamb. But you see, the chorus in heaven sings here, and they overcome Satan, of course, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. It's just that empowered testimony of God's people that cast him down from his position of power. Why is it that we have a post-millennial confidence that the gospel will be successful to earth's remotest ends? We have that because we believe that God has ordained through the church to destroy Satan. 
That's what Paul says at the end of the book of Romans. He says, and God will crush Satan's head under your feet shortly. That's why the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. And he gives us power because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Why then is the church not more prevalent on earth? Why then is our testimony not more heard? Why is it that more people are not following the ways of Jesus Christ? Is it because God lacks the power? Is it because God lacks the interest? No, it's because we as his people have been guilty in our silence. We will overcome Satan with the word of our testimony if we'll but give it. And then one final word about our responsibility to witness this morning from Acts the fourth chapter, verses 18 to 20. Acts 4, 18 to 20 tells us that it is actually a command of God. It isn't just that we have God's commission, you are my witnesses, or Jesus' word, go back and tell your friends of the compassion I've shown you, or the empowering of the Holy Spirit, or the hope of overcoming Satan. We have the actual command of God. Acts 4, the 18th verse. And they called them and charged them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hearken unto you rather than unto God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we saw and heard. Now we're accustomed, especially in certain political and ethical discussions in our circles, we're accustomed to saying we must obey God rather than men. That's true. Very important. But you see here where the apostles applied it, they didn't apply it to things like taxation and war. Not that they wouldn't have, mind you. But you see, the direct scriptural point is you judge whether we're supposed to obey you or God. Obey God in what? In speaking in the name of Jesus. But we can't help but testify. We cannot keep from doing this. God has commanded it. It must be so. So we have a responsibility to witness. And that leads me then to my next point, and that's the guilt of our silence. Then if we have this responsibility, I think we can see this guilt <clears throat> in four ways this morning. If you look at Romans, the 10th chapter, verses 9 and 10, you'll be reminded how the Apostle Paul speaks of our salvation. He says, If you shall confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, if we believe these things in our hearts, we must speak. And when we don't speak and we don't make confession, the biblical logic, the inference that must be drawn is that we don't believe. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul put it this way to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 4, the 13th verse. But having the same spirit of faith, according to that which is written, I believed and therefore did I speak. We also believe and therefore also we speak. You see how it works? If you believe, you speak. If in your heart you believe God raised him from the dead, you'll confess it with your mouth. <clears throat> and so the guilt of your silence is evident in that if you are not testifying to Jesus Christ, 
if you're not taking opportunity to make your faith known, you may not have a faith to be made known. A second way to put this is to remind you what Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 8 and 9. Luke, the 12th chapter, verses 8 and 9. These words are so hard that I'd rather have you hear them as Jesus put it than even to summarize it myself. Jesus said, I say unto you, everyone who shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me in the presence of men shall be denied in the presence of the angels of God. Failing to confess Jesus can lead to his failing to confess us before God and his angels. Our silence is guilty. It's guilty because it may show we don't truly believe in our heart of hearts the things we say. Our silence is guilty because God says, Jesus says, that he will not confess us before men if we are hesitant to confess him. He will not confess us before his Father, excuse me, if we are hesitant to confess him before men. And then perhaps of all the passages we're looking at in our study this morning, the one that I want you to remember the most is this one in John, the 12th chapter, verses 42 and 43, because it gives us the main reason for our silence. John 12, verses 42 and 43. What an indicting, indicting passage this is. The main reason for our silence, here it is. Nevertheless, even of the rulers, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that is of men more than the glory that is of God. And the reason I'm silent, and the reason that you're silent, is because we would rather maintain our stature in the eyes of men than to improve our standing in the eyes of God. Here are these people who believed what Jesus said. They knew he was who he claimed to be. But they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be socially ashamed. And because they desired stature in the eyes of men, because they wanted the glory of men, and desired it more than the glory of God, they wouldn't confess him. Confess that, Christian. Isn't that it? Isn't that it with you? Isn't it that you wish rather to have men think well of you than to have God think well of you? You would rather maintain the glory of your acquaintances than the glory of your God. And so we are quiet. We down gear, we pedal back. We sometimes are utterly quiet about our religious stand because we don't want people to think ill of us. And then a fourth way in which we see the guilt of our silence finally is that our guilt is found in the insensitivity that we have to the plight and the destiny of those who do not come to share our faith. An insensitivity to what the stakes are in this particular game. An insensitivity to the everlasting damnation 
that shall inescapably come upon those who will not confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. I mean, what's it worth to you at that point when this neighbor or this relative or this acquaintance of yours, this friend, what is it worth to you to maintain your status, to maintain your position, to keep your good name? What is it worth to you not risking the possibility of offense or embarrassment when you remember that the final end of that person to whom you should be speaking will be unmitigated pain for all eternity. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. Knowing that men will fall into the hands of an angry God and will be consigned in his wrath to everlasting perdition, we persuade men. Indeed, we are motivated to get the word out because we don't want our neighbors and our friends and our relatives to suffer that utter damnation. God has put a responsibility on us to witness. And when we do not do so, our silence is a guilty one. Silence that is guilty because it shows we don't really have faith in our hearts. Silence which is guilty because Jesus says, if you won't confess me before men, I won't confess you before the Father. Silence that is guilty because it shows we favor the glory of men above the glory of God. Silence that is guilty because we don't care, finally, for the destiny of those to whom we should be speaking. What's our incentive for overcoming this silence today? I want to suggest three to you very quickly. First of all, you need to be in the grip of Christ's constraining love. Oh, there's a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 5. That maybe you ought to focus on in your devotions this week. 2 Corinthians 5, at verses 14 and 15, Paul says, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they that live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him who for their sakes died and rose again. What a passage. The love of Christ constrains us. And we judge that if he died for us, we no longer live for ourselves. If you'll let your life be in the grip of Christ's love, and if you'll remember you don't live for yourself anymore, and your tongue will be loosened. You'll begin to speak, constrained as you are by the love of Christ. Notice how Paul goes on in verse 20. We are ambassadors, therefore, on behalf of Christ, as though God were entreating by us. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're his ambassadors. He holds us in the hand of his love. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. We represent him. And of all things, God beseeches men through us be reconciled to God. So there's an incentive to overcome your silence. The constraining love of Jesus Christ in your life. And of course, secondly, if that doesn't do it, add to this the motive of obedience. For Jesus said in Matthew, the 28th chapter, that we are to obey this command. Go make disciples of all the nations. Go and do it. It doesn't say sit and study evangelism. It doesn't say sit and just think about this. He doesn't say sit and worship me. He says go. Go. 
You know, sometimes the simplest messages are the most effective. Go! Get out of here! Stop hanging around all your Christian friends. Get out to the Gentiles. Get out to the nations. Get out to the world that needs to hear this message. Go! And so now this afternoon, if you sit around and decide you won't become evangelistic, you're disobeying God because he said go. Thirdly, and above all, devotion to the glory of Christ's name. The Apostle Paul in Romans, the first chapter, at verse 5, uses this kind of language. Through whom we receive grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake. Why is Paul an apostle? Why is he interested in all the nations coming to the obedience of faith for his name's sake? You know, we sometimes don't think enough about that. The glory of Christ's name. The importance of Christ's name. 3 John, verse 7, tells us the same thing at the very end of the New Testament there. A little book that you probably don't pay a lot of attention to because it's so short. The seventh verse of it, we read, Because that for the sake of the name they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. For the sake of the name they went. The name. What name? What are they referring to? The theology of the name that is so important in the New Testament is perhaps best made known in Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2, where Paul says in verses 9 to 11, Wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave unto him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name. For the sake of the name, Paul sought the obedience of faith among all the nations. For the sake of the name, those that John spoke of went forth testifying of the grace of God. For the sake of the name, we must speak to others. We must pray not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. And if that is what we're living for, we will testify. We will witness. We'll speak of God's saving mercies. I want to conclude this morning by calling you to witness for Jesus Christ in a way that you've not known in the past. This is no longer the ordinary call to be the kind of people you know you're supposed to be. This is a very existential, personal, very direct application to you, each and every one of you. I want you, from this point forward, to have a new life as a Christian. A life that is one of testimony to Jesus Christ. Everywhere you go, for the sake of the name, in obedience to the command, in the grip of Christ's constraining love to testify of him. Our concluding passage this morning is in John, the fourth chapter. It's often used because there we see Jesus evangelizing the woman at the Samaritan well. But I'd like to use it very briefly here to point out something else. After Jesus spoke to this woman at the well, we read in verses 28 to 30, so the woman left her water pot and went away into the city and saith to the people, Come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming 
to him. Verses 39 to 40. And from that city many of the Samaritans believed on him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans came unto him, they besought him to abide with them. So the setting is the woman is gone to get the people from the town to come out and see the Messiah. And they are now coming to Jesus. The outcome is many will believe. But in the intervening time, the disciples begin to speak to Jesus. And it's right here that I want you to catch his words. Verses 35 to 38. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white already unto harvest. He that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. That he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. For herein is the saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. Jesus says, lift up your eyes to the harvest. Now you know he wasn't talking about the wheat fields because he says it's four more months before you'll harvest them. Don't you say that it's yet four months to the harvest? But I say lift up your eyes. Look at the context. What's he talking about? The people are coming out from the city of Samaria to see him. He says, lift up your eyes to the harvest. In Matthew 9 we read, Then he said unto his disciples, The harvest indeed is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore to the Lord of harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Yes, pray that the Lord will send forth laborers into his harvest. Pray that he'll send you. Let's pray. God, forgive us this morning. Forgive us for not being all that you want us to be. Forgive us for being so talkative when we shouldn't talk, so consumed with things that shouldn't consume us, and so silent about the things that count most. Forgive us for our guilty silence about the way of salvation and the mercies of Jesus Christ our Savior. Open our mouths. Indeed, we would pray, Lord, that you would give us a thousand tongues to sing with us and to confess with us and to testify with us of the mercy you have shown us. Make us laborers fit for the harvest. Overcome today our guilty silence. Show us the job that we have to do and give us as our incentive, above all, the glory of the name, the name of Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen.